What if you could simply trust all information on the internet? My name is Sebastian. I'm on a mission to build a trusted web for all of us on planet Earth. An internet where my parents, possibly my future kids and my own generation can find truth and feel safe. Because to save the world, we need to fix the internet. In the Trusted Web Podcast, I embark on a journey with you, my listener and thought leaders to explore what needs to get done. And in this episode, I'm joined by Professor Paul Resnick. So in this episode, I'm joined by Paul Resnick. He has an impressive resume with positions at MIT and AT&T Lab. And now he's the professor and director at the University of Michigan. More specifically, he's a director at the Center for Social Media Responsibility, where you, Paul, and your team have developed a way to measure the progress of media platforms at meeting their public responsibilities. We're going to talk about the important work you do. So, Paul, welcome to the show. And would you mind quickly introducing yourself and the Center for Social Media Responsibility? Thanks, Sebastian. And yeah, you've done a great introduction already. We're a few years old and we are trying to help the platforms to meet their public responsibilities and those public responsibilities include things like informing the public creating good environments for public dialogue and uh, the big part of what we've been doing is is to create metrics that will allow for comparison over time are things getting better or worse and comparison between platforms are things better on Facebook and on Twitter or on Reddit versus YouTube. Before we dive in the measurement tools, um, we're recording this half day January. Uh, what is the state of fake news and the state of misinformation on the internet currently? Well, um, you know, one of the things we're able to do is, is track things over time. And so our work is, is focused on how much of stuff, not so much how bad is any particular thing. So, uh, you know, we've definitely seen over the past nine months um, an increase in the amount of, of popular content, of that thing, of content that is getting a big audience on Facebook and Twitter that is coming from what we call these iffy sites, sites that don't have good journalistic practices. So there has been uh, an increase over the past year, uh, which was re reversing a trend that happened for the previous couple of years. What, what are specifics that your research has shown? Can you share some insights? Yeah, I'd be happy to. We, um, the main metric that we have out already is, is this iffy quotient that we've been tracking since 2016. Every day, top 5,000 most uh, shared things on Twitter and, and on Facebook. And then of those 5,000, what fraction of them come from the iffy sites? So the the big finding is that there have been changes over time. It hasn't, it hasn't been steady. At the, at the very beginning, Facebook had a higher fraction than Twitter did. Both of them went up during the 2016 election. And then they both had, especially Facebook had a period of two years of decline uh, where they seem to be getting better at uh, whether it's, and you know, we can talk about what, you know, what they might've been doing, but. Uh, and they, they, they switched their positions and, and they sort of cut in half overall uh, how, much, how much content from the iffy sites was, was getting to, to have a big audience. So, but then 
And we also found a reversal during the last year. And so to unpack, you make a list, for example, every month or every year on the 5,000 top shared articles? Every day, actually. Every day. Wow. I mean, we're, we're, we're depending on a third party to do that for us. But yeah, we're, we're getting, we're getting uh, data from Newsweb. Wow. And um, is it hard to get that data or is that, for example, uh, other question, for example, Facebook, are they uh, cooperative in this or, um, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're getting it one step removed and we don't, you know, unfortunately from an academic perspective, we would like to know more details of it, exactly how this measurement is happening. But, but basically they're, they're using, from, from what I've been able to piece together, so Newswhip, they, they're providing you know, analytics for often for marketing purposes, uh, for, you know, if you're a brand, imagining who, who their normal customers are, but we, but we're, we're working with them to, to, uh, to get this list for, for, for our purposes. When I've been able to piece together, they're actually, uh, keeping track of new URLs that are popping up. So they're keep internally figuring out what are all the things that are out there. And then they're using Facebook's APIs. And Facebook does give out some information uh, through their API. You give it a URL and they'll, they'll tell you, here's how much, how many, some, some notion of how many shares it got. So they, Facebook won't let you ask, what are your most popular? But if you have a whole lot of things that are the candidates that are most popular, so they have you know, millions of those that they're um, hitting the Facebook API with, and then they're figuring out, okay, here are the most popular. And uh, they have a slightly different methodology for Twitter, but they're, but they're basically, it seems to be pretty reasonable that they're, the things that they're coming back with, that, that those are the things that are popular that day. And is there kind of um, the iffy quotient you have, do you give that back to a Facebook, for example, is that, or is that something that's discussed with them? No, it's, uh, it's out there for the whole, for the general public to look at, uh, you know, I think Facebook notices it when there's a newspaper story about it. And uh, the quotient, if a uh, number, how, how do you come up with it? What kind of criteria do lead to uh, the quotient? Right, so we've got those 5,000 for the day and some fraction of them we're gonna call iffy. And if it's 8%, that's 8% is the iffy quotient for the day for that platform. So how do we decide, is this URL from, from an okay site or an iffy site? And for that, we're again, relying on an external partner. It's uh, NewsGuard is, is our primary. And if, if there are things that, um, that NewsGuard hasn't rated, then we fall back on, on another list. So, uh, but NewsGuard has, has a bunch of journalists and they have, uh, I don't know, 11 criteria or something, nine, something like that. Do they, that are criteria on which they're evaluating the sites, not individual articles. Do they publish retractions when they get it wrong? Do they list uh, who the publisher is? Do they, so they have, uh, and uh, just an empirical assessment, how often do they publish stuff that's wrong? Uh, and then they make a composite score and anything above 60, we say is bad. And, and so they're, that, so we're, we're outsourcing that decision about the, the sites. We, we actually would like to do something at the individual article level. And I've got some ideas for that in the future, but right now we're, we're just saying at the site level, 8% are coming from um, sites that, that are iffy. And that doesn't mean that, you know, not everything that, that an iffy site publishes is wrong. Some of it is perfectly true. 
Yeah. And I've spoken to Stephen and um, the NewsGuard CEO, and it's super interesting what they do. The fighting misinformation with journalism, it sounds so logical. <laughs> yes. What needs to change for fake news to be solved from, you've seen so, ma so much research, you've done so many research, uh, you've seen uh, the corporate world with AT&T, you've seen uh, universities from inside out. What must change for the problem of fake news to be solved? So I think, I think there are, there's a sort of conceptual problem and then there's an operational thing. The conceptual problem is they don't have a defensible way of deciding which things are fake and which aren't. The platforms don't want to be in the business of making those determinations. They don't even really want to be in the business of, of saying, Agence France Presse, you're going to be the arbiter of truth. Uh, they don't want to pick, and yet they're making decisions all the time that they are taking some things down. And if they take enough things down from, from one source, they're shutting down the account or, or, or you know, putting a, a permanent emotion on, 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 that, on that source. So they are making the decisions, and they're very uncomfortable with having to do so. And so they, they haven't solved that philosophical problem. Some, for some categories of, of content, not, not around fake news, but around uh, you know, uh, hate speech or, or other kinds of objectionable content, they, they, have a, they have these long code books, like 110 pages, and they just get bigger and bigger and we can talk about why I think that's an approach that is that is it's doomed to doomed to failure. Um, but it also puts them in the position of having to defend every every page of that of of like well that's you know we are the arbiters of truth uh, or we are the arbiters of good taste. So so I think that problem has to get resolved, and we we could talk about that. But I think the the basic approach needs to be to not have these detailed criteria, but very high level criteria, and then uh, assemble panels, juries of, of citizens to make the actual judgments. That's the philosophical one. And then, then they have an operational problem, which I'll say of scale, of timing and scale. Like by the time you, you would have your jury or whoever you decided was going to be your arbiter of truth to look at it, it's too late because the item's already gotten 80% of the audience it's, it's going to get. And I think the, the resolution of that is going to be a quite radical one, which is to switch from the, the default of assuming that everything can go viral unless we know that it's bad to assuming that nothing can go viral until we've unless we have evidence that it's good. So change the default from assuming everything's okay to the, the default is uh, either this item has been judged or it's from a source that has a reputation that is at stake and we're gonna... So it's not that things can't be published, but they, they, can't, they can't go viral until they've been, until they've been verified either verified or come from, from a reputable source. I think that's where we're gonna to have to go. 
but we're very far from it. And you know, when I floated this idea to to people at platforms, they're like, "Oh, whoa, you know, that's that's so far from our conception and our users' conception of how our platform works that that's not just going to happen. That we're going to say, you know, the presumption is everybody's good. And there's a few bad actors out there, and that uh, you know, if if we were going to say that." everybody's stuff is, is throttled uh, and only a few people's stuff is not throttled, that, uh, that's going to require a big change in, in how people think about it. Yeah, it's, that's a train of thought we reach from a totally different perspective. So what we do is we do timestamping information with blockchain, which does two things. Firstly, transparency, how did information change over time? And secondly, you can connect your identity, for example, your government identity to uh, information you publish. It doesn't say anything about truth, but it puts your reputation on the line when you publish something. So, and then we say we won a prize from the European Commission there, the blockchains for social good, which, where we said, hey, the more accountability you take, the further your content can travel. So there's always freedom of speech. Everything must be able to say. But if there's no identity connected on social, only your friends can see it. And the more identity you connect to it, the further it can reach. So there's always freedom of speech, but not the freedom of reach. Yeah, I think yeah, I love that phrase. Freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. Uh, yeah, and I, I think, I think uh, that mechanism is going to be one key element uh, to be able to track the providence of things. And I think you're exactly right that the default, so if, if you have only a few things where people are, are doing this, then, then of course, you know, the bad guys aren't going to label their stuff, with, you know, signed Mr. Bad Guy. Uh, but, but you switch the default and you say, if it's, if it's unsigned, we're going to treat that as untrustworthy until, some, until it's somehow been vetted. What would be the, the adoption of, of a strategy like this? Because, yeah, you mentioned it, so for sure you did a lot of thought on it. What, what will be the roadmap to get this adopted? And what's the role of the platforms? What's the role of policymakers? Uh, how do you see that evolve? Yeah, I, I'm not sure how it rolls out. You know, one scenario is an alternative platform comes along and they, from the beginning, have this kind of policy and uh, people see that, wow, I'm getting all the good stuff that I was getting from Twitter, but I'm not getting all the crap, and, and, and they win. So that's one possible way that it goes. Um, another possibility is, is, some kind of, um, is some kind of regulation. In the, in the US, we're, we're talking about uh, everybody hates the CDA, uh, um, you know, the, the safe harbor clause that, that, lets, that lets the platforms um, do some content control without being responsible for the content that they didn't control. But I haven't seen any good ideas for, for what the replacement would be. And uh, I, I think there might be some, something that comes along there that involves some transparency requirement on the platforms and that might include that, that might I can imagine something that might create an incentive for for switching over to a well we have certain things that we promote and uh, 
and everything else is sort of completely free for all and we don't we don't we don't take any responsibility for those things and then there's the, the things that that we that we do take responsibility for and is and if there is some set that they are taking responsibility for i think they'll they're likely to end up in 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 this uh well we only take responsibility for the things that we've vetted or that we vetted the source. And then that'll, that'll create the opening for, for, for your system. And, and um, what must be the role of regulators? And firstly, are they educated enough? And secondly, must they enforce some kind of rules from your perspective or what's your idea there? To be honest, I'm kind of worried that they're gonna make it worse rather than better. When you have a situation where lots of people dislike the status quo and there's not a clear vision of of even the best case of what the alternative is right? even when you have a great idea of what it is then then there are unanticipated side effects and whatever but if you don't even have a clear vision of yeah like if we do it this way here's how everything could work well and and then you you still say but we have to do something probably the something that you do is going to be worse than nothing so I'm, I'm, I am a little worried about where it's going to head. And how do you, uh, last question, how do you see this evolve over, uh, will fake news and misinformation get worse or will it get better from here? And is there hope? Where will we be in 10 years from now? I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. I, I think, I think it'll, it'll be better. I, I think the, it's the same thing of what's the default. We're, we're so focused now on what can't we trust? And we've got all these media education efforts that are around helping the general public to realize when they're seeing something that's untrustworthy. And I think we're just going to have to flip it and focus on what can we trust and how can you recognize something that is trustworthy and what would be, you know, what are processes that you would trust that you would say, okay, if it's been through that process, I'm going to, I'm going to accept it. And, uh, when we do that, there, there is a lot of trustworthy stuff out there. Even like, you know, our iffy quotient of, you know, went from 7% to 11% over the course of last year. Well, that's 89% of the stuff is not coming from the iffy sites. 89% of the stuff that, that is getting popular is not from the iffy sites. So most stuff is good. And, and if, we, if we switch from, from trying to weed out the bad stuff to to focusing the attention on the good stuff. I think that's going to be our solution. Looking forward to see. And at 20, 2030, is then the internet trustworthy or what would you say? There will be a part of the internet that is recognizable, that is recognizably trustworthy. The rest of it will still coexist. That's my prediction. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, to close things off, where, where can people find your work and the dashboards? And uh, yeah, where can, pe where can people find your work? csmr.umich.edu so csmr.umich that's university of michigan.edu uh, is the website for our center and you'll you'll find from there the iffy quotient and you can play around with it you can see how it's gone up you can see on any particular day what are the 10 most popular urls from iffy sites and what are the 10 most popular urls from okay sites you can see you know various other things that you can drill down and see the see those details. So yeah, come take a look. Perfect. And uh, yeah, I've checked it out. It's super interesting. So the links will of course be in the show notes. Thank you, Paul. It was super insightful and uh, good luck with the important work you do. 
Let's build the trusted web together. That was it for this episode, Professor Paul Resnick. And lastly, I'd love to invite you to go to thetrustedweb.org slash podcast. There you will find our report on the state of misinformation because we surveyed thousands of participants across the globe to better understand the impact misinformation has on their lives and how they view the problem. There are incredible findings that surprise us all. And furthermore, you'll find uh, the other episodes and education and use cases for building a trusted web. It's all available there and, of course, for free. TheTrustedWeb.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening and therefore being part of the Trusted Web journey. And let's build the Trusted Web together.